This weekly podcast inspires you to step outside of your comfort zone. My name is Zakir Muhammad, and I'm your host of the Living Legacy Podcast. I am a cancer survivor, brand cultivator strategist, author, and world traveler. This Living Legacy Podcast features women of purpose sharing stories of resilience. They are single and married. They are artists and entrepreneurs who run businesses and juggle parenthood. If you are ready to hear interviews about professionalism, entrepreneurship, travel, life, and love, you are in the right place. They will share stories of how they overcame adversity while seeing life through a different lens. Let's get into it. Happy New Year. Are you ready for tips on how you can step outside of your comfort zone and into your zone of genius? Well, have no fear. The Sea Life Through a Different Summit is here. This is a two-day virtual summit with over 10 women speakers on topics such as book publishing, mental health, finance, podcasting, entrepreneurship, and much more. This life-changing event inspires women like you to grow to be the best version of yourself in your personal life and in your career. Shift your mindset into a greater sense of abundance, gratitude, all while seeing life more positively. Enjoy this summit right from the comfort of your home, March 2nd through 4th. There will be unlimited replays, panels, breakout sessions, and workshops, as well as a virtual expo. Sign up now to get early bird ticket and a special gift of a supplemental journal. Visit bit.ly forward slash see life different. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash see life different. This episode is sponsored by my new book called Seeing Life Through a Different Lens, a survivor's memoir on overcoming adversity with resilience. You can visit ZakiraNayar.com. So today on the Living Legacy podcast, we have Bernie Plank. She is a writer and host and producer of the award-winning And Then Everything Changed podcast. And it talks about pivotal moments in life and these hard decisions that define us. And it's really good at highlighting the lives of people who have survived hardship, trauma, pain, and overcame it with resilience. I was on episode 11, so I can definitely attest to what a great podcast it is. We met in a podcasters Facebook group, and I definitely encourage you to check that out. We'll leave it in the show comments. So the stories that she shares on her podcast are the ones that inspire all of us to continue to step outside of our comfort zone, be vulnerable, and be strong. So she's a former actress, but she began writing after her second child was born. And since then, she's had work published in The Atlantic, Washington Post, Publishing Post, and many, many more outlets. She also has a memoir coming out in spring of 2021, which she called When She Comes Back. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about legacy. We're also going to talk about how she overcame resilience. And she currently lives in the Seattle, Washington area with her husband and kids, and she's from New York. So welcome, Melanie. Oh, Sakira, thank you so much. I loved the introduction. Thank you. You're welcome. I did my research. I mean, I know who you are, but I also did my research, you know, so people don't know who you are. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember I we met on that group for podcasters, women podcasters, and I reached out to you because I was so excited about the work you're doing and about your personal story. And you had just published or were about to publish your memoir. Yep. Yep. I think that's exactly what it was. And now I felt like, you know, why not turn the tables and, um, let, you know, let's switch it. So you can also talk about your memoir and your life story a little bit too. 
I've had the question before when I've interviewed guests and I find my guests, they find me. It's kind of like a a 50, 50 where I reach out to people or they find out about me and want to be on the show. But I have had the question several times, um, what made you want to do your podcast or why, you know, I, I had one guest who asked me and I think they might've wondered, why are you asking all these people to be, you know, highlighted and stuff? Like what's in it for you is kind of, I really felt like that was sort of a question like, why are you doing this? Right. Cause I'm not making money off of it or anything. And I realize now that I think part of that question could be answered by saying, I too have been through a story that required grit and resilience. And I'm not just a voyeur trying to collect people's stories of hardship. I think that my interest started uh, when I grew up and I realized, Hey, uh, I overcame something to get here. And it's not really a pat on my back as much as, wow, so many people are experiencing hardship. So many people have stories that you wouldn't know unless you asked. I was just talking to someone I've known for years in my neighborhood, and we just were talking for a couple of minutes and it spun out into this conversation about addiction in her family of origin and uh, being raised by someone who had a prescription drug problem and not understanding the full scope of that until she herself grew up. And I thought this woman and I have known each other for years and her story has been right there all along. And I just hadn't asked or we hadn't gotten to it. So I think the main, the main thrust of my podcast is to learn about people's lives and how they got to where they are now, what they've learned about it, and what they think about what they've experienced. And, you know, I used to act uh, in my 20s. I was in New York and then LA. And so I suppose I've always been interested in taking on a different life or a different character. And then, as you said, when my second child was born, I started writing and I started writing fiction. And that was a time when I was still maybe hiding a little bit of where I came from or understood, you know, kind of what had happened in my life, but wasn't embracing it totally maybe. Um, And I had done therapy, but, you know, maybe not working the way I needed to work yet. And so writing fiction was great. And it was a, a wonderful thing to realize that I could write stories that people would read. But then I started writing nonfiction, which then became memoir. And I got a master's in that, in nonfiction. And this book was born. And I've been revising it and revising it, as you probably know, because you're a writer too, um, how much work you have to do to get something done. And then you have to do it again. And then you have to write it again and like figure out what's working, what's not working. And then you get to that point where you're like, I think this is good, but you kind of need an outside eye. But then you get the outside eye and you have to hold on to your vision, right? So it's, it's this like push-pull that I've always thought about when it comes to writing, like being true to yourself, but also taking in from outside. And I think that's a little bit for all artists, you know, whatever your art form is, which is being open to the, world, uh, the world's reaction to what you've put out there, but also holding fast to what it is that you're trying to create you know? So, uh, right. So I go on and on. I'm talking and talking, but anyway, so I wrote my memoir when she comes back, which is about my mom leaving, uh, twice when I was a kid to follow a guru and ultimately not ever living with her again and being raised by my father. Uh, my mom followed the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, which 
a wild, wild country docuseries was made about it on Netflix. And so this guy, Bogwan, which have you ever heard of him, Sakura? I haven't. And just in case our listeners haven't, please go ahead and tell us. Yes, yes. And and it's funny because I feel like people fall into the two camps. Either they've heard of him, knew about him, or they have absolutely no idea who I'm talking about. And I think part of it is a generational thing. And part of it is also he set up shop in the Pacific Northwest where I now live. So people are familiar. So Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh is an Indian spiritual leader who was really coming into his own in the 1970s. And part of this is because I'm a lot older than you, Zakira, so I'm sure this wouldn't be something you would just know about. Um, And he had an ashram in India, and a lot of Westerners were following him, a lot of people with a lot of resources, a lot of like you know, people from good families and connections were going out to follow him. And, and, and part of what his, what he taught was a life of living passionately and, and letting go of all your inhibitions. And this included sex and it included free love and it included dynamic meditation at, and it also included, please don't have kids. And if you have them, they are distracting to, your life as a spiritual quest, you know? So it didn't really work well to have kids in India. And so my mom and dad had divorced. We lived in Seattle. I was real young. I was like five and a half, six, when she went for the summer to visit his ashram. And my dad had moved to the East Coast by now. And that's another leaving that was part of my childhood because when they divorced and their marriage, you know, their family was really falling apart. My father ended up moving to New Jersey to Newark, New Jersey, in a community, I'm sorry, that was my phone, let me just, um, a community called Ivy Hill. It was subsidized housing. And um, he lived there with a whole new family, like his girlfriend and her two daughters, while my mom raised me and my sister in Seattle. And she had no family in Seattle, and she had no social support, and she had no money except for the child support he sent. And so she fell into this sort of late 20s, early 30s depression. You know, what am I doing? I left my family and then married this man, and now he's gone. And prior to that, they lived on a kibbutz in Israel, which is a social kind of work communal farm that's very like – it's a very like equitable place to live and raise your kids and kids all live together. It's like a, not a commune, but like a community work farm. And so she had no support. So anyway, she decided to go to India, wanted to bring us. And my father, you know, was like, that's not a good idea. Eventually she brought us to stay with him for the summer. She went to India, but she didn't come back because the ashram and Bhagwan were so amazing. So she ended up staying away for almost a year. And so my dad scrambled to get us registered, me and my younger sister for school and to uh, create a life for us in this tiny apartment in New Jersey. And I ended up spending the whole school year there. Um, And my mom came back uh, 10 months later with, you know, she was wearing a mala, like a black beaded mala with the picture of Bhagwan on the end genie pants, a nose ring, big fluffy hair, this kind of glow on her face because she'd just been doing spiritual and really freeing stuff in India, you know? And obviously when you don't have kids to take care of, you can feel a lot more relaxed. (laughs) You know, like I think when the kids aren't around, it's really easy to find like spiritual freedom, right? So um, she came back because her mom was sick and she came to take care of her mom. 
And I write this in the book, but I don't know when she would have come back had her mom not been ill. You know, I really don't. Um, and I don't know when I would have seen my father again had my mother not brought us to stay with him while she went to India. Um, so my mom ended up staying in New York and we stayed with my father while she got herself settled. And we ended up seeing her every other weekend. Um, and I thought that was pretty much the way my life was going to be. We moved to Flushing, Queens, which is a borough of New York and another apartment building. But we moved out of my dad's girlfriend and daughter's house apartment. And we moved to this new place, three bedrooms, Flushing, me and my sister. It had an outside pool. Like in the summer, it was open. It wasn't fancy, you know, by any means, but it certainly was like gorgeous compared to where I had just been living. Um, and so we started like a regular life. Like it was what I thought was going to be, you know, pretty frequent visits by my mom. And, um, then when I was 12, she decided to go visit the ashram that the guru had established in Oregon. Um, and so this woman she met at some, I don't know, like self-realization group, because my mom was always searching, told her about the new ranch in Oregon from Bhagwan. And my mom said she was going to go for a couple of weeks in June that year. And my sister and I just kind of felt a little crushed because it seemed really familiar. And then while we were at sleepaway camp, we got a letter saying, I'm going to stay longer. I'm not coming back in July. And that began the next phase of absence. And, um, you know, that was, that was crushing because I think you can get used to the way something is and, and kind of grow with it and, and rise to the occasion. But then, and part of that was me thinking it's going to change or it's going to get better. In fact, prior to my mom going the second time, she said we might get an apartment together with her. So my sister and I, and my sister's two and a half years younger than me. And I was about 12 at this time, 12 and a half. We were like, hey, we're going to move in with mom. This single dad living is going to change, even though my dad was a really good dad. But it was hard to grow without your mother. Then she just didn't come back. And October came and November came. And there we were in our apartment in Flushing, like without our mom again. And when she did come back in November, the ranch, the ashram in Oregon had just been basically uh, like closed down by the FBI and raided. Bhagwan had been extorting money. There were like all kinds of things happening there, including um, maybe false citizenship and false marriages and possibly shipping in a whole bunch of homeless people to create bigger numbers for political reasons and then possibly poisoning certain people and definitely releasing salmonella in salad bars to poison voters. So it was the biggest biological attack on U.S. soil at that point uh, because of Bhagwan. So that's just a tidbit. <laughs> so um, anyway, she came back to the East Coast to visit us for a second and all hell broke loose between her and my father and she fled to Seattle, Washington and I never lived with her again. So that's what my memoir is about. It's a coming-of-age memoir. And we ended up reconciling, my mom and I. She lives five minutes away from me now in Seattle, and she was around to help me with my children. And so a lot of people have asked me, you know, how did I get to that point? You know, how did I get to this place of forgiveness or acceptance or reconciliation? And it is a really good question, and I'm kind of still working it out. I'm still trying to figure out what it entailed 
to have a relationship. And it's, it's equal parts blind belief that we should have a relationship and maybe also just suspending some of what I know and just, you know, blindly kind of just going with it. And also perhaps knowing that certain people have certain resources and you might not be able to get more out of them. And so making do, you know, so I'm still kind of working on that. And I plan to write an essay about it because I think it's a big question that I've gotten from some early readers. Yeah, I think that essay is going to be a great idea because um, uh, that's the question that came to my mind also. Because the there's, story is unique, but similar in a very relatable manner in the sense of a lot of children who are um, product of divorce, especially as a child, go through that cycle of, uh, in a way, losing themselves in the process because they are, you know, they, that's all they knew with their mom, their dad, their sibling. And so when that changes, how do they, you know, find themselves again? And then when the opportunity comes for a full circle to reconcile, to um, introduce the grandchildren, like how do people move forward from that? How can they forget the past? Not fully forget the past because it was already, it's always going to be there, but how can they, you know, move forward from that? And so I applaud you for, you know, healing because like you did say, it's a, um, a, always an ever-changing healing process because, I mean, it's not, it's not one thing. Until you fully, I feel like it, it, it's writing also does, um, is a healing process. Writing a memoir is a healing process. So it's, it's, it's a lot of bits and pieces that take um, in the same phase of a day at a time. Take it a day at a time, right? So what, um, what three tips do you think would say off the top of your head, maybe before you even write this essay that you would think of that would help people in this day and time who not only are they separated from their families, you know, because of what's going on, but, you know, because of, you know, say they are thinking about reconciling. What tips do you have for that? Well, I, I guess the first thing I would say, the first thing that comes to my mind um, is it's really personal. It's a personal journey and nobody nobody's story is exactly alike. And so it's a process that someone has to come to on their own and no one can compare their story to yours and have it be equal. So just because I did one thing doesn't mean that someone should do something else. And I'm a big believer in not shooting on yourself, right? Don't think you should do stuff. It's really got to come from a place of knowing inside and what feels right to you. And, you know, I think people were so complex that that could change on a daily basis. You could feel at peace about something and ready to make a move and the next day feel like you're not ready. And so I think you have to remember that your story is your story and you have to do what feels right. The other thing that was really important to me, and I've been thinking about it, is that I had to do some work on who I was and um, not believe that it was because of who I was that this happened. And, and that, that might, I don't know if, if listeners have a different reaction to that because, you know, there was an actual time in therapy years and years ago where I said to my therapist, uh, well, but we were such good kids. I don't know why she left, you know, and my therapist just kind of looked at me without any kind of therapy mask on and just said, it had nothing to do with you. That's not about, you know, it wasn't because of who you were. And that started a really long, long simmer process. It was not an immediate aha. My eureka moments have never been fast. 
they've been really slow and I don't know when they occur except that I look back and I realize, oh, I don't feel that way anymore, you know? And then you like, you want a third tip. So let me think of one. I'm sure I have, I have one in there. <laughs> um, I think that, um, I think you also have to be able to, it's like a part two B, which is to love yourself and to realize that you're doing the best you can. And I don't think any of us are as amazing all the time that we think we're amazing. And I don't think any of us are as bad as we think when we're feeling bad. I think really the answer is somewhere in the middle. And that is a big uh, breakthrough for me because I grew up so extreme in my thinking, black and white, black and white. Everything was this or that, opposites. I just needed to kind of categorize everything so I would understand it better, which I think is a real childlike thing to do. But it took me years to realize that things have so much more nuance. And so we're not all one thing. And I think I think that we need to give ourselves grace that way. Absolutely. Um, I love the part about we are not all one thing, especially considering your background of also being multi-layered, multicultural <laughs> as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's funny to have, I was born in Israel where it was so Jewish. And then in New York, I lived for a long time where there was a lot of Jewish people, but also my elementary school was a melting pot. I mean, I can't even count how many different languages were spoken in my classroom, you know? And then now I live in Seattle, which is so homogenous in some areas. And so I'm one of the few Jewish people I know in my circle. And it's just been a really interesting thing to grow up in so many different places. Yeah. And it's a good thing. It also is a good thing. And speaking of, I think we're almost coming to the end of the episode. So I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. When it's all over, where do you want to travel to first? That's a great question. Um, okay, I'm going to just spit some out. New Zealand, Japan. I'd like to go to Bali. Um, I think I've never been to Paris ever, so I think I need to go there. And I think it would be really fun to go to Israel again. And uh, the next question, which is probably fun, but maybe consider a little pondering, but what do you want your legacy to be? I would say that I want my legacy to be that I helped to open the door to radical empathy or really strong empathy and understanding and patience. And one of my biggest loves is raising children with respect for themselves and support. And I do teach part-time, at least before COVID. And I feel it's so important to offer children the building blocks for security and confidence. It's so important to me. So however I can do that with my work, whether it's writing or speaking or podcasting or educating parents, that's a big legacy that I would like to leave. I love that. I love that. You're definitely living it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Now, where can we find you on the web and where can we find your books? Awesome. Okay. So my podcast is called, and then everything changed. Uh, and that is on all the major platforms. You can find that there's also a website. I also have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram under my name, which is Ronit Plank, which you can find the spelling for in the show notes. And so just look up Ronit Plank and you can find links to my podcast, links to buy my book, which is on Amazon in the pre-order phase. And that's called when She Comes Back, which Motina Books is publishing in the spring for Mother's Day, actually. Very nice. Very yeah. Nice. And that'll be on audio. That'll be on audio, print, and Kindle. Very, very good. Perfect. 
So I definitely uh, thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for sharing your story. And we look forward to seeing you on the web. Oh, Zakira, thank you so much for letting me be your guest. I loved having this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Living Legacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and download so you don't miss the next episode. If you want to learn more, you can visit ZakiraNayar.com. That's Z-A-A-K-I-R-A-H-N-A-Y-Y-A-R.com. Do you have any suggestions on a topic you want to be talked about? Or leave them in a review. If you love this episode, be sure to share it with your friends.